Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. As always, be sure to check out the website for the post about this episode with, you know, the maps and stuff. And trust me, if there was an episode you might need the maps, uh, this might be one of them. Oh, and the website has the links to my socials, and I see a few of you have found that. And I appreciate the DMs on Insta, the emails and whatnot. Really, it means a lot to me. But also, it just came to my attention today that Spotify, my preferred, and it's not a paid promotion, but my preferred mode of podcast listening, has now added star ratings to their podcasts. As you know, rating my show does not mean a lot to you. It's very quick. But to me, it does mean, really, a lot. So if you could go to your preferred podcast listening service, drop the rating of five stars. Look, I would love that. And heck, if you can, comment. But before this episode kicks off, I wanted to talk about Aero Farms. Now, while Aero Farms is not affiliated with this podcast in any way, here is a bit about what Aero Farms does. Okay, so look, as you are all keenly aware by now, I don't do this podcast thing full time. Instead, I have revealed that yes, I do have a job, and yes, as you know, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Consider this today's life update, because as you've probably put together by now, yes, I work for AeroFarms. Though some of you found me on LinkedIn and knew this already, but regardless, AeroFarms is a leader in vertical farming and a certified B corporation. We grow our baby leafy greens and microgreens with 95% less water, zero pesticides or fungicides ever, and with 390% more space efficiency than field growing. Oh, and it's available all year with simply elevated safety and most importantly, flavor. And I'm not saying this all because I work there. I had a college diet of fast food and energy drinks, so getting me to eat lettuce of any kind shows that we at Aero Farms do something very right. Now, we at Aero Farms are currently in the process of building a brand new 136,000 square foot farm, the largest of its kind, in Danville, Virginia. And that's why I'm based here in the South. So, go to www.aerofarms.com. That's www.aerofarms.com. Or check the link on the website to learn more and find some near you. If you live in the U.S. Northeast or Mid-Atlantic, you're in luck. Our Newark, New Jersey farm currently sells at Whole Foods, ShopRite, Stop and Shop, Amazon Fresh, Say We, and Fresh Direct, amongst many others in the Northeast. So, try some today. And if you do, oh, trust me, you're going to love it. But look, let's get into it. Without further ado, The History of China, Episode 45, The Red Eyebrows. Let's just jump right into it. Last episode, we talked about the puppet Emperor Ping. He's in place, and Wang Mang is working him like a puppet. But puppet Emperor Ping doesn't make it very long. And in 6 AD, Emperor Ping died. Yeah, now what? While par for the course, a child heir was chosen. He didn't last long, didn't have a chance to have a fully grown heir. And we know well by now what that means in terms of a child heir. 
bingo. It means there's gonna be a regent. And yes, obviously that regent was gonna be Wang Mang. I told you last time that Wang Mang was no Huo Guang, and he's about to prove why he wasn't. Like Huo Guang, Wang Mang was made a regent ruler. And just like Huo Guang, he was clear when he said, I promise to give all this power back once it's time. My teacher once told me that about my PSP when I was 11, and I'm 23 now, so where is it at, though? Like that promise made, then broken by my teacher, Wang Mang made the necessary preparations. He fought off several increasingly desperate attempts to quell his clear power grab. Heck, his own son tried to stop him. But on January 10th of 9 AD, with all the pieces in place, he really shows us why he is no Huo Guang. Instead of handing the power back, Wang Mang does one of those things in history that sometimes proves the great people theory. If you don't know what that is, here is the theory in brief. When viewing the long expanse of history, historians have tried to track in terms of trends. There is an infinite amount of things that have happened, and so it's worth it sometimes to try to boil them down into a predictable science. And depending on when you went to high school, you were taught one or several of these theories. There is the trends and forces view of history, that history tends to repeat itself. This is the theory that addresses the forces that cause system drift. Even when a trend changes as a system encounters an imbalance of forces, successive trends tend to be similar to prior trends when the system forces come back into balance. So that's one way to view it. Then there is the one in question, the great person theory. This is more of a 19th century idea, and it really is that history can be largely explained by the impact of great people or heroes. And it's that highly influential and unique individuals who, due to their natural attributes, such as maybe they're smarter or they're ahead of their time, they're courageous, they're great at leadership, maybe they've even had divine inspiration. And yes, sometimes with a little bit of luck, but these are the people that really move the needle in history. These once in a generation people. And Wang Mang makes one feel that the great person theory has some sway. Because on January 10th, 9 AD, he announced that he himself had received the mandate of heaven. And what's that? Oh, and that the Han dynasty should end. And guess what? He didn't stop there because he then proclaimed the start of his own dynasty, the Xin Dynasty, X-I-N. If you are holding your phone or any way you're listening to your podcast, about to click pause to say, wait, 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 what? One second, I'll explain. You've probably never heard of the Xin Dynasty, and I hadn't really until I learned more about China. And you also probably know the Eastern Han is a thing. So it's already kind of spoiled. This does not go that long. And it is not considered a legitimate dynasty in the eyes of Chinese historians, even of that age. So he, I guess, runs a new dynasty? He started strong to his credit by pushing a quick fire bout of reforms. And not all were really bad or evil. 
And that's the thing I want to talk about quickly. Wang Mong was clearly a power-hungry guy. Probably a maniac to some level. But he wanted things to work. And he tried to make things somewhat better, even if his actions ended up having the exact opposite effect. For example, Wang Mong went about this renegade dynasty by outlawing slavery. Okay, that's an ethical start. He then also tried to nationalize the land to equally distribute it amongst the households of the dynasty. While good intentioned, it wasn't really well thought out. And for that one, he probably should have waited until 1949, but alas, the Chinese Communist Party is a long way from where we are now, and these ideas of nationalization aren't going to work. Then he tried one thing that was doomed from the start. We just talked about this, but he tried to introduce a new currency. Well-intentioned, though as you might remember, the coinage that was introduced right before Wang Mong's entrance onto the stage, that coinage sticks around for 700 plus years, and thus you can infer that this coin isn't gonna work. So with the coins first, all he ended up doing was debasing the coins. Yikes. That's really bad. Nothing says off to a bad start like spiking your own coinage. He may have garnered a cult of personality, but no one's going to buy in when their own coins can't buy food, can't buy supplies. So that is a really bad way to start your renegade dynasty. The other major reforms were not exactly dynasty-destroying in themselves. It was generally a bit too much too quick, though. If you are, again, going to create a rogue dynasty, one can argue you have to be aggressive. If you're going to do something this wild, you got to put your elbows out and make moves fast. However, if you are too aggressive, you'll run the risk of just creating too many problems on top of the fact you already inherited enough problems to begin with. All these policy decisions did was create pockets of animosity and opposition throughout the dynasty, giving him enemies at every conceivable level of the Chinese populace. Government and policy ended up being the second fiddle, though. He may have been trying to be a bit overambitious, but it wasn't the government that ended up not really working. It was Mother Nature who all about sowed this dynasty's demise. Starting in the year 3 AD and going till the year 11 AD, the Yellow River began to flood at historic levels. In a sort of prophetic way, it's a little ironic that the guy who wanted to take things back to the Zhou Dynasty and a little bit into the Shang and sometimes even the Xin Dynasty got hit with catastrophic flooding of the Yellow River, just like what happened way back then. Irony and maybe karma aside, the fact was this flooding was catastrophic. Way back when this show first started, we discussed the on and off again flooding of the Yellow River constantly. We marveled at the incredible engineering feats pulled off by these very ancient Chinese civilizations to quell these floods. It would be a problem today. It was a problem today. 
the Yellow River still provides problems for even the most modern technology. You might have noticed, hey, we haven't talked about this being an issue for a while. We haven't even talked about the Yellow River in a while. And, well, you're right. To this point, it really hadn't been a problem. However, over the long march of history, silt began to build up inside the riverbed. Slowly but surely, bringing the water level higher and higher and higher. It got so high that all existing waterworks and flood control measures that were built in the past became simply overwhelmed. They were not able to handle this level of water. The flooding got so bad that the Yellow River actually split into two separate branches. In fact, the southern branch that ended up being created wouldn't get dammed up until 70 AD. Which, look, that's impressive that it happened at all. The fact that they were even able to dam up a river this size on that branch at all is a feat of engineering. But 70 AD was not going to happen in Wang Mong's life, and thus his ill-fated dynasty. These floods, coupled with the other issues that had been either bubbling up for a while or had been brought up recently by his own failures, policy-wise, combined to thoroughly evict thousands upon thousands of people. Well, the floods did most of the evicting, but the years of lazy policy rendered the Han Dynasty, well, I guess the Xin Dynasty, completely incapable of responding here. This was a tough problem, and it would have been a tough problem even for the Han Dynasty at its strongest. That point is moot, though, and it's irrelevant. Because the fact is, China is not at its strongest governmentally right now. We had been alluding to it for weeks. The Han Dynasty was getting lazy at its governance. Tons of things were not working, but nothing had really happened to expose these missteps, may I say. And now you have a new renegade dynasty shoving random policies down the throat of the Han Dynasty, or Xin Dynasty, a massive flood is simply going to wreak havoc on any and all plans. But the eviction of the peasants mainly was a major problem and would prove to bring down the Xin dynasty. Because these peasants, completely on their own, quickly resorted to banditry. Order began to be truly lost. But banditry then became organized banditry and several groups became quite powerful. But the one we will focus on, and the one Wang Mang will have to focus on a lot, ended up being called the Red Eyebrows. So let's back up and let's talk about them. The floods and the general misplaced policy aims of Wang Mang displaced people twofold. We know that. Policy-wise, incompetent execution of the land distribution just shattered farming and subsistence farming communities. That alone was bad. They couldn't grow food and couldn't work to get the money to get food. And oh yeah, there's a giant flood destroying all the land. So yeah, banditry became the way of the land. By 17 AD, the foundations of the red eyebrows were being laid. A character named Fan Chong started his own 
full-fledged revolution slash bandit group, and by 18 BC, he was able to get 10,000 people under his sway. Things are always at a simply different scale in ancient China. Yeah, in one year, he gets 10,000 people to join his little group. And Fang Chong himself was at the north of the Han Dynasty, or Xin Dynasty, at Mount Tai. Map on the website, obviously. Fang Chong then teamed up, slash consolidated, with four other smaller rebel bandit groups in the area, further growing his numbers. But he's not the only one. Elsewhere, another group formed. And here, we actually get one of our first cases of a female character in the historical narrative of ancient China that is not almost cartoonishly vindictive. It's no Empress Lu, but similar name. Because enter another organically formed rebellion slash bandit group founded by none other than Mother Lu. During the floods in Wang Mang's reign, her son was a minor official. But in 17 AD, he was accused and then convicted of a minor offense. Allegedly even a fabricated offense at that. Regardless, he was unceremoniously executed. Mother Liu then went full Rambo. What do I mean by that? Herself a wealthy woman, she goes and sells her land and possessions then promptly used that money to buy the support and loyalty of a new personal army of poor and displaced farmers. See, it's all tying together. And she didn't just buy a few dozen. Mm -mm. She bought thousands. In 17 AD, she went to the magistrate that executed her son with her little army now of bandits and displaced farmers, stormed his area, his compound, and then killed him to avenge her son. I mean, talk about an amazing character here. Talk about someone that's, wow. I mean, that's in itself a great story. This success inspired even more to flock to her, this time for pretty much free. Wang Mang had no ability to win support or keep order in these regions, and soon tens of thousands were quickly under the control of this mother with nothing but vengeance on her mind. Though, as much as I just built her up, sadly, if you wanted more Mother Liu, as fast as she rose, illness brought her down, and in 18 BC, she was dead. Maybe that came as good news to Wang Mang. Maybe without the head of the snake, the now tens of thousands sized group that she had accumulated would fall apart and crumble. And that happens sometimes. Though that was short-lived good news, because these rebels slash bandits then just went over and joined Fan Chong. <laughs> yeah. To make this situation worse, Wang Mang then decided, hey, maybe now's a good time to raise taxes on farmers. Yeah, that sounds great. And that worked as well as you think it would have. It did not. Then, Wang Mang decided it's actually time to try and put these rebellions slash bandit groups down. And yes, there were more than just those related to Fan Chong. His was just really big and would play the biggest role. 
His quashing efforts from his military were, well, as lackluster as everything else he was trying to do. And by the end of 21 AD, they proved so bad, it actually led to more people revolting. The army ended up being so undisciplined and so awful that they made the locals they were trying to protect angry. And so angry, in fact, that they would defect. And not only that, but the army was so ineffectual on the actual battlefield that they put none of the existing rebellions down. Even if they did, it was maybe a small group here and there, but nothing to put a dent in them. Overall, they had an adverse effect on the whole thing. By this point, Fan Chong and the other rebel leaders really still had no plan. They were still roving bandits slash maybe rebels. And to their credit though, they had shown genuine military success. They had some maybe tacit agreements on what the rules would be amongst their little cohorts, but they never really wanted grandiose titles. The leaders of these rebel groups had only had titles that they had bestowed upon themselves that included County Educator, the San Lao, County Clerk, Tong Shi, and Sheriff, Zhu Shi. Yeah, they didn't name themselves Prince or General or even Marquess. They really kind of just stumbled in to a position where they could really make a difference. And by 22 AD, Wang Mang and one of his generals, Jing, went up directly against Fan Chong and some of the other bandit rebel groups. And this all comes to a head really quickly. And this shows you just how incompetent and how ripe of a situation this was. It's only 22 AD. It has not taken that long for things to completely fall apart in the Han Dynasty, for Wang Mang to declare himself the head of the Xin Dynasty, and then for the rivers to flood, and now you have tens if not hundreds of thousands of poor peasants roving around beating armies. It's like Spartacus on steroids almost. Because by 22 AD, General Jing of the Xin Dynasty and Wang Mang himself went to go fight Fan Chong. And in 22 AD, Fan Chong ended up killing General Jing in battle. Yeah, this is going terribly for Wang Mang. At some point, it's almost comical. Wang Mang then freaks out, sends more forces over, and this time it's 100,000 men. Realizing that 100,000 men were bearing down on them, Fan Chong and the other rebel leaders were very concerned that during a battle, these untrained peasants would have a very tough time deciding who was on their side, who was on the other side. They wouldn't know. So they ordered their men to color their eyebrows red. And yeah, yeah, that's why they're called the Red Eyebrows. That, that's literally it. The name was Chermay, Red Eyebrows, and that's where it comes from. Wang Mang promptly loses this campaign mainly because they couldn't maintain any discipline and they really could not garner any real effectiveness on the battlefield. By the end of 22 AD, things were looking really bad. And at the Battle of Chengchang, the tired forces that Wang Mang had sent were defeated by the Red Eyebrows, the Chermei, and collapsed entirely. One of his top generals of the Xin Dynasty, Lian, died in the battle and Wang fled without his troops, alone. And this ended really the last time the Xin Dynasty would ever try to fight the Chermei, the Red Eyebrows. 
And then what happened was another revolt because the red eyebrows, as I mentioned, were not the only ones. The Xin dynasty was then faced with the Lu Lin revolt and the Lu Lin forces went on to actually capture the capital in 23 AD and they killed Wang Bang. Yeah, I know, I told you, we're gonna jump right into it and it's gonna be fast and oh my God, it all happened in like seven years. You had the red eyebrows on one hand doing most of the damage and then in the chaos, there's a Lu Lin revolt and those forces go on to capture the capital and kill the sitting emperor. What they then did, these Lu Lin rebels, was placing what we now know as the Gungshur Emperor on the throne. And with that, as quick as it came, the Xin Dynasty ended. And this is sort of why it's now just sort of part of the Western Han Dynasty in our historical tracking. But now, it's time for the Eastern Han to rise out of the ashes of this, looking back, speed bump. That was a lot for one episode, crammed pretty tightly in a nice little packet there for us. But anyway, be sure to go to Spotify, rate us five stars, follow me on the socials, donate if you so feel the will. And of course, please reach out to me. Lastly, make sure to go check out aerofarms.com and try to find some near you. It is really Really a fantastic company, and I could not be happier working there. So go check out the website, and thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you all next time on the History of China.